In the spirit of reconciliation, the team at Essential Ethics acknowledges the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Family-centred care, or partnering with families, is accepted as a best practice framework in paediatric clinical care. It's the framework we strive to adopt in our care of children at the Royal Children's Hospital. The hospital, along with its campus partners, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics, also comprise an international centre for paediatric research. Research has been slower than clinical paediatrics to realise the benefits of partnering with families. However, this concept of the value of the child and family experience in research is increasingly being adopted. Today, we ask, how does partnering with families in research actually work? What are the benefits and what are the challenges? How do we ensure we are honouring family expertise? How do we guarantee support for family researchers to effectively contribute to the research process? Does this place an unfair burden on families? Most importantly, if we partner with families, how do we make sure that all the important voices are heard, including that of the child? Welcome to Essential Ethics, and this podcast where we will explore ethical issues in engaging families in paediatric research. I'm your guest host for this episode, Jenny O'Neill, Clinical Nurse Consultant in Bioethics here at the Royal Children's Hospital. I am joined by Ms Holly Feller, who is the mother of a child with a rare disease, a parent advocate and co-founder of Usher Kids Australia. She also works as a project officer at the Genetic Support Network in Victoria. Welcome, Holly. Thank you. Associate Professor Adrian Harvey a Senior Research Fellow in Neurodisability and Rehabilitation at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome, Adrienne. Thanks, Jenny. And Miss Mariana Vanesky, who's a Program Manager of Infection Flagship and Project Manager for the National Low-Risk Febrile Neutropenia Program at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Welcome, Mariana. Adrienne, I might start with you. Firstly, what do we actually mean by family engagement in research? I think one of the key things is partnering with families in research. So not merely asking families to be involved in research or being participants, but working with them in partnership to guide the research and to engage with them early on in the research process. Adrian, can I just jump in and ask you what you mean by partnering them early on in the research process? Where does early on start for you? Oh, I think it depends on the project and I think we are learning to uh, engage with families much earlier than we used to. So sometimes we might engage with families to help us guide the direction of our research, like what should we be researching? But other times it might be that we have a particular area that we're interested in and then we engage with them at the start to ensure that our research design and our methodologies are appropriate. Yeah, that's great to know. So why did you ask that question, Holly? Is is what's your been your experience? Oh, I've had I've had some good experiences in co-creating research, um, but also somewhere it's been tokenistic uh, across the board. I, I think 
the best example that I've um, been involved in has been with the Melbourne Disability Institute, who actually set out a grant where you can apply to have a researcher work with you on a project that you identify as a par- as a parent or a participant. So I've been involved in that um, in my support group, Usher Kids, and we're understanding, trying to understand through that research the met and the unmet needs of families of young children with with Usher syndrome. So looking at it from the parents' perspective and using that research to provide us with evidence informing um, needs-based programs rather than just on the kind of the thought and the conjecture of us as founders of what we think families need. We want that research to inform what we provide to our families. So that's been my best experience of of co-creating research. And um, there's a lot of examples in between that people have been working with. How does that compare with tokenistic use of parents in research? Well, I've also been in examples where I've been asked to contribute to the research at a much later stage. And then when we have been sitting in a meeting, you know, it's been noted that my comments and maybe some of the other parents' comments haven't actually been written down by the researchers and only the other comments by the other researchers have been noted down, which is a terrible example. But obviously there are still groups out there that think that that it's okay to behave in that way with parents. Um, I think the the role of the parents in these research projects is is so critically important, uh, the voice that they can portray and also including the voice of their children. And I think I would agree with you, Holly, that I think not not, not all researchers have been um, good at, what I I say, engaging with um, parents and families. They rather, they sort of know they need to include them in some way. So they do do it, have done it in a tokenistic fashion. And I don't think that's good for anyone. Whereas we now realise that um, families, children and families bring so much richness to our research. It's, It's just so fabulous to sit down and and I know I've had experiences in the past where we think, um, so for instance, one of my areas is pain in children with disabilities. And we sort of had an idea of what we think we should be researching. And then when we've had focus group with parents, they give us all these other ideas that what's important to them and that we haven't thought about. So for us, it's just invaluable to have families involved in planning our research. And that's why I asked you that question earlier on and like, uh, what is the beginning for you? Because often you get invited to have these conversations and you're not sure whether that is the beginning of the research or whether the grant has already gone in, the funding is already established and they're just sort of checking that what they thought, the researchers thought was a good plan is actually on track by um, asking for the points of view of the parents at that point. So it's really important to have that um, open conversation with the parents so that they do understand at what point they're jumping in and whether what the co-creation means um, for them um, as parents as well as as researchers. So it sounds like co-design with parents and with families is really beneficial from a research point of view in terms of making um, research clinically applicable and relevant to families. So I'm really interested in why it's not more widespread. Mariana? I wonder with your discussion, Adrian and Holly, that you just mentioned as a researcher early in your career, you, you sort of think, oh, am I burdening the family and taking away time that they need to look after their child and you feel, oh, maybe I won't engage early because, you know, I kind of need them 
their, their time more at, at a later stage when you're co-designing a certain aspect of your study. I wonder if that's also an issue as an early researcher, just assuming that the parent doesn't have the time and therefore you don't ask them. And that conversation sometimes can be quite beneficial because, Holly, I'm sure you've been in this situation well, before or something I similar. Speak, I can't speak for all parents, obviously, but I would say that you should never underestimate or try and preempt what that parent is capable of. For some parents in that journey that they're going through with their child and and their condition, they might find talking about it in a research environment quite cathartic. They might find it a way of unburdening from the pressure of being the the caregiver for that child and even just being asked, even if they are unable to make the time commitment, means a lot to them and then if they can't, they will probably be very honest. Again, it's it's having having that honesty really open at the beginning of the of the project, so that um, that everyone gets an option. And I think that's part of the engagement as well. You you can't just assume, you know, that um, that a, a carer or parent that that's their situation, and every individual parent or carer needs to kind of reflect or respond to your needs of your research project according to how how they can engage. Having worked with parents of kids with cancer and sort of in the early days of engagement, I was always wondering whether certain parts of the research on the treatment or the care pathway might be a bit triggering for the parent. So if you're talking quite extensively about a particular reaction that their child might have experienced, how will they feel when that discussion is had in a meeting or when you're trying to design the research? And so I guess as a researcher, you're a little bit hesitant of, is that going to be something that's a bit too close to the home or triggering for the parent or the carer? I think it's really lovely that you you have that empathy for the parents and you have that thought process around is this going to be too much? And I once again would just suggest that it, it's worth having that conversation around that at the beginning with the parents. So probably covering the the list of topics that may come up within the research and then just making sure that you have somebody in place to support them if there is an emotional uh, reaction to the work that is being conducted. And I think if you have that in place and you and you make it really clear to the parents that, you know, just in case this makes you feel uncomfortable or emotional or brings up feelings that, you know, you weren't expecting to have, we have you know, this person in place as a backup to help you through that through that process. And I think just having thought about that will make those parents feel so valued so that for some parents, being able to talk about it is quite cathartic and they will relish that and, and being able to assist in this process is the silver lining for them to get through what they're actually travelling through. And for some parents, you know, it isn't going to be possible. Everybody will will have to be able to manage their own emotional capacity within that research. But if you have some backup, that will be amazing for them. But also, I guess, for them to know that like lots of things in life, it's okay if something's upsetting, that it's that's that's normal for them to be upset about that particular thing and that, you know, because I think sometimes we can make it worse by shying away from some of those aspects of what we do. And I think we're particularly good at shying away from it in research where we see emotional upset as a potential harm 
and perhaps parents don't see it that way. Perhaps they see the value that they bring and the value they get out of research as being a far outweigh any emotional distress they feel. Or maybe it's not even emotional distress to them if it's it's just part of their lives because the reality of their lives is is what they've been through with their child. So, Mariana, you mentioned it's important to value the contribution that families bring to paediatric research. But how do we do this? Do research systems make this difficult? Adriana, I might pass this one to you. I think they do, but I think they're changing with the times. And I think that if I think about a recent experience I've had where we put in a grant where we had, we actually asked three parent partners to be investigators on our grant, which was great. But obviously then for those of you who have submitted grants out there, the, some of the systems where we need to put in all our information, it can be quite clunky and they're hard enough for us as um, academics who have been doing it for a while to navigate. So I think that we have to make sure that we are putting processes in place whereby the parents or families or children, whoever is involved, are supported and that we're helping them to do those processes because otherwise it will just put them off doing it. But I think that those three parents that have been involved in that grant application that we did were, you know, really they have added so much more to our grant application, but the system itself is set up for academics. So there was a lot of information that wasn't relevant to families that we had to tweak, but it's, it is achievable. So financial compensation is important. Are there any other ways of valuing families and what families bring? I think it's important to look at the diversity of the families. In my previous experience, it's been quite a few of the mums that have advocated as the consumer or the engagement partner from a parent point of view. But I think it's as researchers, we need to make sure that we do engage with a diverse group of consumers to make sure that all members of our community are represented to meet the needs of the parents and the families. That ties in nicely with financial compensation too, because we now make sure that whenever we put grants in, that we have Within our budget, we ask for funds to pay for our families that are part of the research. And I think that one of the reasons a lot of um, people from different cultural backgrounds who may not, where English may not be their first language, are excluded from research is that people don't have enough money in their budgets to actually enable their voice to be heard by paying interpreters. And I think that we need to, all those things that enable everyone to be able to have their voice and to be involved need to be considered when we're asking for, particularly for grant money, to carry out our research. So currently are you saying we're hearing possibly the the more confident voices of parents or we're engaging those parents who put themselves forward rather than a reasonable cross-section of all different types of families? That I would say, I would say yes. Yes, I agree, yes. I would say even from a parent point of view, I think that I end up in groups with people that have been doing it before. I think it's an easy win for the for the researchers and and they can also be time poor in terms of the restrictions of time to pull the research together. And if you know you've got a group of of willing participants, it, it you know, it's very easy to go to them first. So it's about recognising the diversity within that parent group. Uh, and and I guess avoiding that form of tokenism in that way that we, we've got parents, it doesn't matter what their individual experiences are, they all 
represent all parents. Yeah, and I think just back to Mariana's point in just reaching out and asking all the different types of parents you can um, so that you do get that diversity and, and, and understanding that for, for many of them um, it unleashes, it takes away some of the burden if they think that they're participating and helping in something that will help other families in the, in the future as long as um, there is a clear path to implementation because I think there's nothing worse than participating and investing your time into research that is not implemented at the end. So I think that's a really important factor to consider. And maybe that's another way we can value families by by seeing the research through and, and allowing them to reap the rewards of the clinical impact of that research. And I think this almost loops back to our discussion at the beginning about at what stage do you involve families or parents in research planning and I know that we, in the past, we have run focus groups where we've talked about, you know, what sort of research should we be doing, which has been great, except if there, if things come up that are really important to parents that we don't actually then have the money to actually do, that feels to me like a bit, a bit of a waste of time for the parents, even though we know that's an important priority. So sometimes there's a sort of juggle between how early do we ask parents, but also we might you know, there might be certain calls for funding where we know we can apply for this, so therefore there is some direction to the research already before we've engaged parents. And I guess it's a very much a chicken and egg situation yeah. there. And from a parent's point of view, you may have a really clear idea of what information and research you need that can provide evidence to support your ne- your your community's needs going forward. I think very much looking at the way the NDIS is working at the moment, there's a, a lack of clinical evidence to support a lot of people's applications into the NDIS. And so from parents, if some of this research can help support very much those day-to-day processes, then it's going to be a huge benefit and that time investment is definitely worth it. So helping parents find funding sources. So those type of research endeavours can be taken on as well as a traditional research, I think is a sort of... um, a great way to support the parents and give them something that makes them feel like they're really moving forward in that in that capacity. It has real life value then. So this discussion has brought up the question of whose voice are we hearing? We're not hearing from some of the more marginalised voices or parents who are less confident to participate in a co-design process. But are we hearing from the young people themselves from my perspective, um, so I work in research in the disability population, primarily children with physical disabilities, so primarily cerebral palsy, and I think that a lot more children can be engaged in research than are being engaged. We have a number of children that have what we call complex communication needs, so they might have alternative ways that they communicate, but if they're given the right modifications or they're given the time or things are adjusted to their needs, then they can very well have their own voice in the research. And I think that we need to do what we can to make sure that the people we are researching about do have their voice. I think it's also important to note that the voice of the child or the teenager is very different to the voice of the parent. And that's why 
Um, it's important that their opinion is heard. Sometimes the parent can speak on behalf of the child, but it might not be a true representation of the situation or the, the answers that um, the researcher might be looking for. I think it's very easy for parents to continue to be the voice of their child. You spend so much time advocating and trying to troubleshoot situations as as the kind of the plan manager of, of their care for so many years that it's very hard to cut those apron strings and to allow the child to have their their voice and not speak over them and not think for them. Uh, so I think you know the more that researchers can can encourage that, the better off for the for the parents as well. I think it's um, that would be fantastic. I know that in the Healthy Trajectories Hub, we have what we're calling a youth advisory council, whereby young people with disabilities are actually involved in the research program and and helping set you know the agendas. And that's been great. You know, it takes a lot of organisation and it takes, but it's a it's so important to involve. But you know, at what point? what age is the best age to include a lot of the young people that we engage with are, I don't know, 18 and above, I would have to say. So, you know, and so if I think about some of the people who've been engaged in my research or my PhD students' research, they're people that I've known when they were quite young coming through the hospital, but now they've had time to reflect and they might be in their early 20s and they're willing to sort of, they can they can provide their experience from what happened, but I don't know that they would have been involved in the research when they were younger. So is that because we're not asking them or are there other barriers to them being involved in the research uh, it's as a good teenagers, quest- it's a good question. Well, I think I, you know, I could surmise as a parent that when your child is in their late primary school, early teens, even into high school, their main focus often is, um, depending on what their condition is and what they're what they're dealing with, is to just want to fit in and be the same as everybody else in their cohort and and their peers and just function in everyday life. And so I think for many of them, the thought of participating in research and taking time out to do that and thinking ahead of their own needs is cognitively, possibly and developmentally not a stage that they're quite at and it's not until they become adults, you know, young adults and they're comfortable with who they are and what they're dealing with that they're able to sit back in hindsight and say, actually, I can support other people through this because I now understand what the needs are. I was also... And I'm thinking as you were talking, Adrian, that what an amazing opportunity for those young adults to come together in a committee and meet other young adults who are like-minded, thinking in the same way as them, and often just being, you know, how exciting for them and how motivational to come together in a group like that around researchers. I think that's an amazing thing to be doing. And I think too, probably, it's interesting because I think all young, if we talk about going back to the younger children and why you know, have we not asked them or not engaged with them? Some others might be really willing to do it. So once again, it's probably the same thing that we need to ask. We don't know if we don't ask. So maybe that is something that we need to think. Yes. Yeah, we need to ask. And I guess, I don't know, do parents gatekeep for their children? I guess it's also, you know, if you have a child that is really keen on doing that, that 
that is a fantastic, but then you also probably sit back as a parent and say, oh God, how am I going to fit this in? <laughs> you know, that's another trip to the hospital and that's another appointment that uh, we have to attend. And so taking into consideration the burden on the parents by in- encouraging the children, you know, as long as it is is created in such a way that it doesn't become another burden for that for that parent, I think it's it's a great thing to be able to do. And there will be kids out there that will be really keen and have the foresight to be able to participate in, in the research and definitely they need to be asked. I think one of the silver linings from the pandemic has been the fact that we can now do so much more online. And if I think about I think it was last week or the week before, one of my PhD students that I supervise in Adelaide, she had a meeting with her lived experience advisory group that helped with her PhD. And so we were all on Zoom because they were all in Adelaide and I was in Melbourne. But one of the um, parents of a young man, he was there as well with his mum. He was sitting there. He didn't look all that interested in what we were talking about, but he did. He was there the whole time and listened to it all and piped up every now and then. But his mum was also there. So though, I think now that we've got that online ability, I think it's for me, for some some of these things, it's taken the burden out of for parents to actually have to take their child somewhere. Yes, and maybe maybe it's not feasible for many of these young people feasible or that they want to participate in a full co-design process, but maybe there's other ways that they can participate and have their voices heard independent of their parents' voice, which is also very valuable because it's a whole family experience often we need to have an understanding of. So we've talked about family engagement and research, and I've heard that it's worthwhile and essential to ensure research is relevant and has clinical utility, but that there are some ethical aspects to navigate, including how we respect families and their experiences and ensuring their input is valued rather than their input being tokenistic or dismissed and minimising any possible burdens, but not necessarily seeing emotional upset as a burden. We talked about equity of access to partner in research, including marginalised voices, quieter voices, and how we include them and how we include young people themselves. And my takeaway is that we need resources to do that. Ethical research needs to build in an expectation of co-design with families in the funding and the systems uh, that guide it. Are there any other final comments that anyone wants to make? Adriana might go to you first. No, I think that probably some of the things that I think about is to make it a positive experience for the families and the researchers is that we do need to provide ongoing support. There does need to be that mutual respect that you've talked about and we need to provide a trusting and positive environment so that um, everyone feels supported. Great point. Mariana, do you have any final thoughts? From my personal experience, I've as a researcher, I found the engagement with um, parents uh, very important. Uh, you, you sort of, as a researcher, sometimes lose sight of why you're doing things and just the interaction with the families and the parents, it makes you uh, motivated and it gives you that realisation that the research you're doing you hope that there is an implementation of, of the positives of that might come out of your research and that that will benefit the families in the long term. I think it's a very important area that as researchers it's been lacking, but now we are seeing the value and, and the importance of engaging with families and even 
the government and the community sees that as well in making sure that we have consumer representation when we're writing grants and and that sort of thing. So I think it's a slow pathway, but hopefully we will get there with uh, the partnering of with consumers being uh, vital to to research and, and its outcomes. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the uh, the personal benefits to researchers of of involving families and what it what it gives to them and and the value they place on their work. It's a really good point. And Holly, we might finish off with you. I think also on a on a personal note, I think to have parents supported to build their capacity and their skill set within research is really important because then they feel like they're really contributing to something for the future in the condition that they're working in. And that can often be the silver lining for those parents to be able to feel like they've contributed to the future. So if it can, their skill set can be supported and mentored throughout the process and build their capacity, I think that would be awesome. Thank you. I'd like to thank all our guests today, Adrienne and Mariana, whose research experience has been valuable, and Holly, who combines her research experience with her parenting experience. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your family, friends and colleagues. The Essential Ethics series was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. It was recorded and edited by Creative Services at the RCH. This episode was developed as part of the McMaster University Can Child and Kids Brain Health Network Family Engagement in Research course in partnership with Healthy Trajectories, a child youth disability research hub for those on the Melbourne Children's Campus. If you'd like to find out more about the activities of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, please visit us at rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.